Amen, you caught me on a drink. Ah, caught me cheating. Um, good morning, church. How are we doing today? That's what I like to hear. I'm glad you guys are awake and doing well. Uh, if you are new and you don't know who I am, my name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Welcome. Glad to have you join us. For those online, love you guys. So glad you can join us online and participate in that way. And put things in the comments. Say things. Tell me how I don't match. Whatever. We'd love to hear from you in that way. Uh, we have been working back into the book of Acts, and I was thinking about this week when I lived in Palmdale, California. Uh, I talk about the desert a lot. You always talk about the hardships in life when you've gotten away from them and you're free, so I talk about the desert all the time. Now, when I lived there, there was four neighbors that lived next door to us in the span that I lived in Palmdale. And some I knew uh, a little bit, some I knew more than others, some became lifelong friends. No joke, lifelong friends. And I remember there was one family that moved in next door, and uh, the owner, who's my really good friend, said, hey, would you be willing to do maintenance and stuff for me when things break because I live in Washington now? I said, absolutely. And so as I was doing that, I got to know the individuals that lived there. And it was a single mom, had a couple of kids, and inevitably she, you know, she realizes, you know, you're my neighbor, but you're fixing my stuff. Like, what do you do for a living? And that's where I was like, oh, here we go. So well, I'm a pastor. And then apparently she had some kind of background or knowledge in church. And then she asked me this question that really confused me. And I'm like, I don't know what to say to that. And the question was this, do you preach from the Old Testament or the New Testament? And I'm like, I teach all Testaments. Like that's, that's how we do it. And I try to explain, like, we preach the entirety of God's word because it explains who he is and where he came from. And then she gave me this really weird, like, answer of, well, I only go to churches that preach the New Testament, and she never came to my church. Why do I bring that up today? Because we're going to look at the reality of the Old Testament explaining to understand what we know about Jesus and who he is and why he came and what he did and the impact that had on that community in that time. And what we're going to walk in today is actually the longest sermon, or sometimes your Bible might say speech, in the book of Acts. It's going to be 68 verses long. Relax. We're not going to read all 68 verses. Um, but we are going to talk through that to understand what was Stephen trying to communicate? Because what ends up happening in this passage is that uh, by the end of it, he becomes the first martyr in, in the, the New Testament of the early church and what's going on. But what he's really doing is this speech becomes an answer to a bigger question of the religious leaders of that day. And so what I want to do is I want to tee up the question. So we are going to be in God's word. Uh, I would really challenge you this week as you walk away, read the whole speech, read the whole sermon that Stephen gives because it's really good. The guys will tell you I have wrestled all week writing this sermon because there's so much good stuff. I hate living, leaving good stuff out. I'm like, oh, I can only take so much. So read it on your own, get there. But let's start in chapter 6, starting in verse 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and those of the... Um, Cecils and the uh, in Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God." 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's go ahead and pray and get into what's going on. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this section of scripture this week. It has just been so much fun to read and explore and study and pray over and allow that to marinate over my life. I ask that as we press into God where you dwell, what is the law and why does that have any bearing on our lives? That you would open our hearts and our eyes to the truth of who you are. Lord, as we look at even the idea of righteousness and where it comes from and how we can obtain righteousness, I ask that you would show us that the things that we strive after for, for righteousness and right standing with you, they will not hold water, that we need something greater and something bigger. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. Uh, please take away anything that's not from you. I ask that you would use this passage to change lives this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, we were introduced to the individual called Stephen. Uh, one of the men who was chosen to serve the Hellenist uh, uh, of that day and of that age, and we found that, that was kind of really kind of the launch pad, if you will, for deacons and how they were established in the church and what they did. Um, if you want to know more about that, go back to last week, watch that online, you can, you can watch that sermon in its entirety. And I said a, full, a, a few things about the man of Stephen. I said that he was a man full of faith, and a man full of the Holy Spirit. And as we open up our text today, and we look at him, he says that a man full of grace, and a man that's full of power. We also find that out, and this is kind of the first section in Acts, where someone other than the apostles were doing signs and miracles and wonders. And so there was something very special about Stephen, and what he was doing, and how he was involved in the church. And so it says that he was serving um, there, and there are these Jews that were Greek-speaking like him, and they wanted to dispute and debate about what he was claiming about Jesus Christ, who he was, and the faith that he had. And what ends up happening is because he's full of the Holy Spirit, it says that they were not able to withstand the truth that he was saying to them, meaning this, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, he was proclaiming God's word, and no matter what argument they brought to him, no matter what facts they brought, he would just lay out scripture and show how Jesus was the Christ, the promised one who was going to come, and that no matter what they said, they couldn't win. So what do you do when you can't win an argument? You cheat. And that's exactly what these individuals do. They start stirring up lies. They're, oh, he's saying this, and he's saying that. And they go to the scribes, and they go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they like rile them all up to where they finally go and arrest Stephen and then drag him into the council that's on the fringe of the building of the temple. So that's where we end up um, being in this moment. It's very much what we saw happen to Jesus, right? That there was false accusations happening to Jesus. They drug him in here and accused him of all this stuff. And now we see the exact same thing is happening to Stephen, which is interesting because what did Jesus say? If they do this to me, why would you be surprised if they did it to you? It's almost like prophecy is being fulfilled right here in this moment. 
Now, it says that they, he is speaking blasphemous terms. What does that mean? It's basically uh, blasphemy is irreverent speech about something sacred. That's all it is, speaking poorly about something sacred. And in this case, they were talking about Moses and God. But as we dive into it more, that maybe the Moses one is accurate, but the God one is really confusing really quick on what they're saying, and they kind of throw their cards out there real quick. So they're really talking about the law and the temple is what they're talking about. That Jesus would come, that he, would, he was going to destroy this temple and change all the customs and the people. And it's funny, it says he's speaking out against God, but then what do they say? He's going to destroy this place. This place is not going to stand. They're not talking about God. They're talking about that the temple is, is almost like the temple is God. That it is so holy, that it is so great, that that is where God is, and that's what God is. And anyone outside of that is just hose, and they don't get that. Now, we get this really bizarre ending of the verse. And it says this, that um, Stephen, that his face shone like an angel. Now, you can use that pickup line on a girl if you'd like when she walks in the room, but that's not what's going on. Um, I'm going to give you my take on what's happening with why Stephen's face is shining like an angel. And really, if you look at how these court hearings would go, it didn't seem like they had a lot of time to answer questions. They would mostly give a lot of accusations, and it was more of a yes-no kind of answer. We see that a couple of times in the Bible when the council was going after people. But you got to ask, why in the world does Stephen get 50 verses to explain where he's at? It seems kind of weird that he has this much time, and this is what I believe is going on. The best that I can give you, and it's, it's very similar to what's happening in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus 34, 29 through 30, it says, uh, 20, yeah, 29 through 30, it says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So we have this, uh, this interaction where Moses and God spend time together. He's talking with God. He's getting the commandments. He gets to see the back of his robe, and then he comes down, and because he was in proximity of God, he was in relationship with God, there was something about some of God's glory was imparted on him that he was even unaware of. So when he came down the mountain, his face shone the glory of God. And he reflected back that thing to the point where he actually had a veil that he would wear over his face so people wouldn't be afraid of him. Isn't that crazy? So what you see is we're talking about who Stephen is, that he's full of grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. That there's something about him that he is so full of the Holy Spirit that I believe in that moment what's happened is that his face started to shine the glory of God because he was in such deep relationship with God that that then showed the council there's something going on here, which I believe is why they let him speak for so long before we get to the ending. Now, Stephen is going to be led by the Holy Spirit here. Don't confuse that with him being a great speaker. Don't confuse that with him being really articulate because that's never what any of the verses say. But what he's going to do, he's going to show them the truth about a relationship with God. He's going to show them how that relationship is connected to the law and ultimately where God truly dwells. 
But most importantly, he's going to show us one of the, these most compelling gospel presentations, one of these pictures that they needed to hear. And what they really needed to hear in that moment, that is it impossible to please God without Jesus. And so then the sermon that Stephen gives goes like this. In the beginning, God met with a man named Abraham, that he chose this man named Abraham to make a people of his own. God was with Abraham, and he told him, hey, I want you to leave your land. I want you to go where I'm going to tell you. So pick up your stuff, grab your family, and just start walking. And I'm going to take care of you. But you're not going to have your own land. You're not going to have any inheritance. You're not going to have a place to really call home. But it's going to show that God provides for him and cares for him the entire time. He was told that God's people, because they would have no land, they'd be called sojourners in a land that belongs to others, and then he promises them that, and you will serve these people in this land for 400 years. But we see that God blesses him, that he promised him a son, and he gives him that son. And then that son has sons. And then they have 12 sons. But he's going to focus on one of those 12 sons whose name was Joseph. Now, the... the the group that was there that was interrogating him, that was, you know, before the council, they would have understood the idea of these sons being the 12, the 12 sons that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So they would have understood all the history behind this. So they wouldn't, nothing would be lost on them. And so what he says is that they did not see, the brothers did not see that Joseph was actually a blessing towards God's people, towards his family. But they became jealous of him and the favor that was given by their father. And so what did they do? They sold him into slavery, right? So what did they do? They rejected him. So they had this one that was to be a blessing to the people, and yet they rejected him and what he was going to do. But here's the thing. God has a plan no matter what, and you can't stop the plan. That God was with him, it says, and had favor with him. And no matter where Joseph went, God continued to show favor, favor and blessings, and he got promoted through the ranks. Till at one point, he is number two in the land of Egypt, only second to Pharaoh. Well, here's the problem. A great famine breaks out all over the land, and people are dying, and they can't live, and they don't have any food, but God had blessed Joseph and told him how to interpret some dreams, and so they took precautions, and they, store, uh, they had a storehouse of all the food, so people had to go to Egypt to get food, to keep them alive, to bring salvation, if you will, and as that took place, the brothers had to go to get food because all their food had run out, and they went there, and they come before their brother, who's the number two in charge. But it says the first time they did not recognize him. It wasn't until the second time that Joseph revealed himself that he was made known who he was. They did not see Joseph as that blessing. But then what we see is the second time that he becomes the blessing to the people to bring salvation to those that are going to die. He still cared for them. He still provided for them. And he says this great line at the end. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But as time went on, the generations passed, and a new Pharaoh came into power, and he did not know Joseph, and he did not know the God that Joseph worshipped. And just like God had said and promised, the Egyptians overpowered and then became slaves to them. And it was bad. Yet, 
the people cried out to God, and he heard them and provided for them once again salvation, a way for them to be redeemed and saved, this time through a man named Moses. Now, Stephen is going to break up the life of Moses into three 40-year segments. The man lived a long time. 40 years. The first 40 years was his birth and his time in the Pharaoh's court. So uh, he was born to a Hebrew family, but they were killing all the Hebrew boys of that day and of that age. And so what ended up happening is they hid him for a long time. And then finally, when it was too much, they put him into the Nile River and he floated down. Pharaoh's daughter finds his baby, says, let's bring him into the house. Let's adopt him. And he is raised in the Pharaoh's courts. Oddly enough, funnier story, his mom was the one that actually got to come in and raise him. Don't have time. Anyway, that takes place, so he knows his heritage, he knows his lineage, but he's raised in the courts. He's, he's taught in all the schools, he's taught in all the military things. He's, he grows up for 40 years as one of the Egyptians. The second 40 years, we see that he sees his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, going through a very difficult time. He sees that they're being oppressed and taken advantage of, and so he goes to kind of like stop this for the first time, and then what he does, he kills a man... He buries him in the sand, and the next day he goes back to go let the people know that he's there to help them to not be oppressed, and what happens? The first time the people come in contact with Moses, they reject him again. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And we see that Moses then runs away. He runs out to the land of Midian, where he spends 40 years out there herding sheep. But there's this moment. And he ends up seeing this fire on the mountain. He goes up to see what the fire is. He finds this bush that's on fire. He hears a voice coming from the fire that it's God. And he says to uh, take off your shoes, right? Remember that story? Because you're about to step on holy ground. Now, you have to start asking the question, where is this really holy dirt? Uh, Where do we find holy dirt? Where do we find this holy bush? Was there anything special about the dirt or the bush? No. No. What made it special? What made it holy? What, it, what made it good? That God was there. So we need to understand that the ground was holy because God is holy. God makes things holy. And what Stephen is doing, I'll, I'll give you some clues as we kind of get moving in. It's not about a place. It's not about a temple. But God is the one that brings holiness. The second, uh, the third 40 years is God leading his people out of slavery Uh, from the Egyptians going to Mount Sinai and wandering the desert with his people. We see very quickly after that, as Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, that once again, the people reject Moses and God, and they say to Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, hey, make for us uh, an idol that we could worship. Make us this golden calf. Make us a God that we're familiar with that's like, that's from Egypt. We want to be back with there. And so they make this idol with all the gold, this golden calf. And they have this, there's kids in here, the crazy orgy thing that goes on and, uh, while they're doing all this weird worship stuff. And so um, God's like, what are you doing? But even through all of that, God walks with his people and ultimately get to a place called the promised land. And then he gives them David, the king of all kings, the, the, the pinnacle of kings that all kings are held up against when we look at what a king looks like. That he wanted to build God uh, a house that he would dwell in. He has his palace, he looks around, he's like, I have this great palace, things are wonderful. But he looks down and sees, well, God's just got this tent. 
That's not going to work. We need to build God a house that really represents his glory and his majesty and his power. But he doesn't get to do it. It's Solomon, his son, that actually is the one that gets to build that. And then what we see is that uh, Stephen then quotes scripture. He goes to Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 66. Where are we at? There we are. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, he says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He says, I will not, you cannot build me a house with human hands. I own everything. I control everything. I can be wherever I want. Before we start to make our way to the landing place of where I want to get, we need to explain a couple of things. Now, there have been two questions that have been asked of Stephen. Are you trying to tear down the temple and you think that the temple is wicked and evil? And you believe that the law is wrong and we're gonna, you're, you, you don't get it and you're going to ruin everything. And So he's, he answers the questions. If you read through it, he actually answers both those questions in really good ways. And he says, the temple's not a bad thing. He's like, temple's fine. Nothing wrong with the temple. I don't have a problem with the temple. But if you think that this is the only place that God can dwell or the temple is God, then you are wrong and you are mistaken. That is not God. That is just a bunch of stones stacked up on each other. See, he points out over and over again that God was constantly with the people all throughout their history. Before they had a land, before they had a building, before they were able to build anything, God has always been there, that God has always been faithful to be with his people. Yes, he can dwell in the temple. He did. He'd do it in the Holy of Holies. Once a year, he'd come there, right? We know that he would go there. But he's not limited to that. You can't put God in a box, and that's kind of like Literally, what they were trying to do is put God in an actual little cubed box. But they can't do that. What made the temple holy was not the building, but that God would show up there in the Holy of Holies. That's what made that building so important. So that means wherever God dwells, those things ultimately become holy which, by the way, is key for us as believers. When Jesus say, be holy as I am holy, you're like, I can't do that. But yet if God resides in us and he is holy, he can make us holy and we can live the holy life that he has called us to do. See, without God's presence, we cannot be holy. We don't have it within ourselves to do that. And then he says, the law is not bad. How do we know the law is not bad? It's from God. If God is perfect and just and holy in every way, then anything that comes from him is good, right, and perfect, right? Just, it just makes logical sense. So the law wouldn't be bad. Here's the problem. Maybe you caught it. As I recap the history of the Jews, Stephen has pointed out over and over and over again that the Israelites actually have not been able to keep the law. No matter how many chances or how much grace God shows them, they can't keep the law. They keep turning, as the Bible says, you're turning from God's word. They, they don't have the ability to do it on their own. So yeah, the law is good. The law is fantastic. But you haven't been able to keep it at all. Here, here's the thing. We need to understand that God actually has a standard. 
But here's the game that we play all the time. We put standards of what is good and right and holy and perfect on a sliding scale, don't we? Well, I'm not as bad as them, but I'm not as good as them. I'm kind of in that sweet middle spot, so I think I'm just right, Goldilocks. That's kind of the game that we play, isn't it? That we're trying to figure out for ourselves by our standards. But the problem is this. My standard's different than your standard, and your standard's different than her standard. So whose standard do we go off of? We have to go off a standard that we know that we can trust. And if God is perfect and holy in all ways, then we can only trust his standard. And here's the problem. We can't meet it. I mean, anyone? Like, we all know we've made mistakes. We all know that we've done things that we shouldn't do. We all know that. So we're all in trouble. See, and knowing the law and not following it might be even worse. It's one thing to be ignorant of the law, but he's talking to these men that have memorized the law. They know it more than anybody else, and yet they're still not keeping it. So which is worse? He's like, you guys, you don't even see what you're doing. And this is where Stephen is going to let the Holy Spirit burst forth from him. He's going to turn the table. So they, they brought him to this meeting to accuse him and to bring charges against him, right? Do you see what he's done? It's, it's brilliant. He has literally flipped the script, and he is now accusing them of the very things that they accused him of. It's like, you don't understand the temple. You're trying to put God in a box. You're saying that God can't be present wherever he wants and that only this is the only place that he can be worshipped. It's the only place that he can provide. It's the only place that he can bless. And you're the ones that say we have to adhere to the law, but you're not even following the law. You're not even doing what the law says. He's totally turned it on them. He's like, you're the ones that are guilty. You, religious leaders, you have missed everything. And then he's going to say this. He'll say this in verse uh, 51, <clears throat> chapter 7, 51 through 53. We'll go through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so you do. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The train's left the station. There's no, there's no stop in the train now where Stephen's going. He uses the Old Testament phrase that would have been known, you stiff-necked people. And, and maybe, like, that's a weird term maybe for us. Like, what does that mean to be stiff-necked? That your neck is turned and it's stiff and you're holding it so you cannot turn that way. It's called being stubborn. Like, I know what truth is. I know what I should do. I know where I should look. But I'm refusing to look towards God because they don't have to stop what I'm doing. You are stiff-necked and stubborn. It goes back to Exodus uh, 32. Exodus 32, 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Stephen is using very, very careful words so the people that are listening would understand this. They would know that verse, they would know that saying, and they had thought that they had moved past that. 
And he's saying, no, you are just the same as you've always been, and nothing has changed. You're unwilling to turn back to God. You're unwilling to repent. You, you say you love God on the outside, but on the inside, you don't. He's like, you don't love me. That's why he uses the term uncircumcised hearts. The idea of circumcision was an outward expression of the covenant that they had with God. That they would see that and they go, ah, I have a covenant with God. All right, that's, that's what that's for. He's saying, you're doing all the things on the outside, but on the inside, you're not at all. Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs. White and clean on the outside, full of dead man's bones on the inside. That's what he's saying as he's talking about this moment. He says, I want you to have a circumcised heart, meaning things that flow out of you, they start at where the core of who you are. He says, you, re you refuse to listen to God, and when he speaks to you through the prophets, and the prophets were just uh, men that God would pick to be the mouthpiece of God, that God would speak to them, and they would go, and they would take a message to the people. Usually it revolved around repenting of some kind of sin and places they would go and things that they would do. That's what they would use them for. And the prophets would come all the time and give them God's word. Well, here's the problem. They would go and the people wouldn't like what they were saying. And they would beat them up and throw them in pits and ultimately they would start killing them. And, and that's what he's saying. It's like, you guys have been killing the people that have been speaking for God for generations. You keep murdering the voice of God all the time because at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is if I can silence the voice of God, then I don't have to change. But here's the thing. You can't silence the voice of God. And the very one that these prophets spoke about, the very one who was going to come and save God's people to reunite them with God, the righteous one. It's a great term. It's only used five times uh, when referring to Jesus in all of the Bible, the righteous one. Two times in Acts, one in Proverbs, and then twice in Isaiah. Um, they would have understood all of these references to that title and to that name. And actually, uh, Isaiah 53 is the one that I really want to focus on. I think I have in there that we're going to do 24, but I really just want to focus on 5311. Um, 50, Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter in the book of Isaiah. Some call it the fifth gospel. Now, a lot of people say because it so encapsulates what the Messiah is going to do, what the Christ is going to do, how he's going to suffer, what's going to take place, and then what that means for us. And so he goes right to this one that's this really thick and rich section about the Christ, the Messiah, and he says this in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So this righteous one is going to put on himself the iniquities, the sin of the people, that he will take the consequence for them, and that through that somehow he is going to make many to be accounted righteous, to made right with God. So you have received God's law and have not kept it. You are guilty. 
If you noticed uh, in the recap, Stephen's doing this thing that a lot of preachers do. Uh, it's called typology. Uh, it, typology is this, is a definition up here for you, a way of reading the Bible in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. So what it's saying is there are these things that take place in the Old Testament, and they are like what's going to happen in the New Testament. So in this sense, what we're talking about, these men that Stephen was talking about were a type of Christ figure. They weren't Christ himself, but they were pointing to Jesus and what he was going to do. And that's really the thrust that he's putting that after him. So let's start with Joseph. So he starts with Joseph, the one who would deliver them, yet they did not recognize him when they saw him. It wasn't until the second time, we talked about that a second ago, that he showed who he was. Yet through it all, God was with him, and he was a blessing for God's people. You take it a step farther, that there's this thing all across the land that is causing people to die. It's called the famine, right? So we have the famine going on. The famine is a picture of sin that it is going to kill everyone, and unless there is a redeemer that comes along that brings something to save them, then everyone's going to die. This was the picture of Joseph that we have to look at, that he was a type of Christ in this. Moses was rejected the first time when he went to bring salvation to the people in Egypt. It wasn't until the second time that they realized he was sent by God. Almost like Jesus came, was rejected by a bunch of people, and it wasn't until later that he was accepted. Do you, do you see what he's doing here? Think about this. What Moses was to Israel is Jesus to the church. See, both men were sent by God. Both men were redeemers. Both were doing wonders and signs. Both were rejected. That's Moses' life. That's Jesus' life. And the idea, you should look at Passover and what's taking place there, that the angel of death was going to come and kill all the firstborn children. And what had to happen? You had to kill a lamb and take the blood and paint it over your doorpost, right? And if you had painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home, the angel of death would pass over that home and that you would live. The blood of Christ, known as the Lamb of God, was spilled out. And if that blood is painted over the doorpost of your heart, we will not die. Do you see what he's doing? And the title righteous one is so important because here's what was happening. And I think we need to, we need to appreciate the magnitude of what's being said in this moment. Um, I don't know about you, I don't like being told that I'm wrong. Anyone else? Am I the only one here who doesn't like that? <laughs> I hate being told that I'm wrong to the point where my older child is giving me facts at the house on his phone. I'm like, I hate your phone. It's always telling me that I'm wrong. I don't like being fact-checked, but it happens. But that's exactly what Stephen is doing to the Israelites because the Israelites were trying to find their righteousness through the law. Stephen keeps telling them, you keep failing. And if they keep failing at being righteous through the law, what does that make them? Unrighteous with God, right? And they knew that if you weren't righteous with God, you couldn't be with God. If you couldn't be with God, you wouldn't be with God for eternity. And there'd be judgment that would come from that. So what we see is that Jesus becomes our righteousness, just like it said in Isaiah 53, 11, right? To make many to be accounted righteous. 
That's where it comes from, from the righteous one. He gives us his righteousness to all that would call on his name to be saved. So by rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting the very righteousness in which they pursue. So the question is, did they understand what Stephen was saying? Well, actions always speak louder than words, don't they? So let's see how they respond to Stephen's little sermon. 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him outside of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You, you think they knew what he was saying? They knew exactly what he was saying. And they responded exactly the way their forefathers did every time God lovingly went to them to call them to repent, to turn back to God, because the very thing they were pursuing is the very thing that was killing them. I want to get practical for a second here. Where in your life are you trying to silence the voice of God? Where in your life do you yell and scream so you cannot hear what God is telling you because he loves you? This idea of gnashing teeth is like, I'm so angry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust my teeth. This idea of screaming and plugging your ears is the very thing that we see uh, all the time on social media when someone makes an argument that they can't defend. They just start screaming and yelling. If I just scream loud enough, I can't hear you and you can't talk. It's very childish, but it's yet we see it with adults all the time, don't we? Where do you block out and ignore God's truth? Where do you go? It's just, you know what, that was in the old, that was Old Testament. That was, you know what, that was a long time ago. This doesn't apply to my life. I, I don't like the way it feels. We're different people now. I can do this thing. It's all right. I can live this way. It's totally okay. God doesn't care about this part of my life. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Where do you need to stop yelling and screaming and plugging your ears? Where do you need to listen to God's word? And maybe it's not even God's word. Maybe it's, maybe it's God speaking through someone in your life saying, this is sin, this is dangerous, this is killing you. You need to repent. Repent and turn from this wickedness, and turn back to God. As I was praying this, I'm, I was praying, I pray all the time, you know, Holy Spirit, you know, fill me to, to communicate your word in a bold and powerful way, and I look at what I just did, and it was nothing compared to what Stephen did. What allowed him to do that? He saw the righteousness of Jesus, and it cast out all fear. He saw the holiness of God through the Holy Spirit, and he realized that he was a child of the Most High God. 
that as he's dwelt upon the glory of God, nothing was worth taking his focus off of him, not even losing his life. And I love what ends up happening here at the end. Is he, he prays these two prayers. As he's about to die, he prays these two prayers. Lord, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this against them. What does that sound like? Sounds like what Jesus said before he was dying. Why? Because the more we gaze upon Jesus, the more we see Jesus, the more we know Jesus, the more we're in relationship with Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. And Stephen had seen him. He saw him in the heaven. He knew that he was being received to be with his Savior. He had done the task set before him, which is proclaiming the goodness of God without any concern about the consequences for his own safety and well-being. It is a beautiful thing to watch someone that is so fully committed and devoted to Jesus live their life in such a way that it shows it in all they do. His life reflected it to the point where his face shone the glory of God to those that were there. So for those that are followers of Christ, we're going to be taking communion in a few minutes. If you, you want to hear God answer prayer, the fastest way to hear God answer prayer is say, God, where am I not following you? Where am I not trusting you? Where is there sin in my life? It's amazing how fast those prayers are answered. Ask him. Ask him before we go into communion. And as he brings those to you, would you stop and pause and give glory to God that he loves you enough to give you an opportunity to repent of the sin that he just brought to your heart? And then repent of it, and then we'll take communion together. For my friends that don't know Jesus yet, it's very easy to try to find your own righteousness on your own. And, and let, me, let me put it in terms that we might understand. To be a good person. I'm a good person. My question is always the same. By whose standard? There can only be one standard we find our goodness and our righteousness. And you are toiling in vain because you will never achieve the righteousness that God speaks of on your own ability. You will not. And someday you will stand before the God of the universe. And he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? And if there is any word on your lip other than Jesus, it's all for naught. He is our righteous one. He is what gives us righteousness. He's what allows us to have access to God. And he is what makes us new and complete, conquering sin and conquering death the way our Savior did. That is what he does. It is only through Jesus, and if you have not done that, I would call you today to call out to the name of Jesus for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, that you would be welcomed in and sons and daughters to the Most High God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for how much you love us, how much you care for us, that if you didn't, you, you wouldn't have called us back to you. You'd have just brushed us off. Lord, as we think of the Israelites and we go, oh, they're so dumb, they didn't figure it out, we just stop and realize that we are a picture of the Israelites. If we're talking about typology, we are the Israelites. We are the ones that need to hear this truth. We are the ones that need to stop pursuing the law to, to make us righteous. 
that we can be holy because you reside in us through the Holy Spirit. We may not try to put you in a box. And we break away from what religion is, a list of rules to be right with you. Only Jesus met the perfect standard and gave his life as a sacrifice. Lord, as we move into a time of communion, I ask that you would just be pressing on the hearts of men and women and myself as well, that if there are any sins in our hearts, that we would confess those and leave those at the foot of the cross, knowing that they've been paid for. That you would let us walk in the freedom that we have, that you would give us the boldness and the power and the strength to be like Stephen, who was just a man who had sin in his life as well, but you used him in mighty ways for your glory and for your kingdom. Thank you for his life. Thank you for the example that he set before us. And thank you that we have the same Holy Spirit that you have promised and given to us that resides in us. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.